Through the written, the written word and the spoken word, may we know your living word, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, we've been on a winter walk with Ezekiel, but spring is coming. Not today, but soon. Today's passage, Ezekiel 20, tests the veracity of Israel's founding story. So we all have founding stories. These are those core myths that anchor our lives and our clans and our faith and our nation. And I'm sure that you all bring founding stories with you into this space. So let me tell you one of my founding stories. It was May 1980, less than a week before my wedding in Spokane, Washington, and late on Sunday morning after church, my fiance and I decided we'd go for a leisurely jog in the countryside. It was one of those sunny, fragrant spring mornings that we dream about in March. So Ellen and I reached the end of this country road and we turned around to run back to the house down the lane and we stopped dead in our tracks. It was quite apparent that the world was coming to an end. The dome of the sky had turned black like a shield it was pulling from the west to the east and shutting out the sun and the sky. The birds had stopped chirping, the, lights turned, the street lights turned on, and by noon, a few minutes later, it was as dark as the darkest night. The dog stood still, silent, and everything had that eerie sense that something incredible was about to happen. And then the sky started to fall. Pebbles, black and brown pebbles and sand and dust started to fall from the sky and rain down on us. We started to run for the house. By the time we got to the house, visibility was zero and we were having a very hard time breathing. Well, you guessed it, May 1980, the largest volcanic eruption in American history had just hit the Pacific Northwest immediately to our west and it pulverized the top half kilometer of Mount St. Helens. So that plume rose 24 kilometers up in the air. It circled the earth and dumped ash on 11 states and five provinces. Dozens of people died. Wildlife, crops, forests, fisheries, waterways were all destroyed. And emergency declarations basically shut down the northwestern part of the states. Roads and highways and airports were shut down. Driving and flying was banned. And the US-Canadian border was barred and locked. It's a great time for a wedding. So the, the premise of the Erickson Coop founding myth could have been that weddings are a disaster in more ways than one. Fortunately, the option to cancel the wedding was vetoed by my mother-in-law. So we did get married six days later amidst uh, the fallout from this volcano and the roads and the airport and the border opened just hours before the wedding. So you can imagine this wedding. The chapel was surrounded by billowing clouds of ash. All the guests had dust masks on and the wedding party wore gray. <laughs> but for Ellen and for me, that was 
a disaster narrative that created one of our founding stories. And it functions to this day as a clan story for all of us in 1980 that were in that place. We live by these clan stories, but we also, we live by national stories and national myths. These are the epics that we tell each other at school and in church and in our homes and in our celebration days. This is how we know that we become something culturally, militarily, politically, and religiously. The challenge in some ways is that grand narratives, however, rarely show grand failures. And even over the years, we tend to sweeten our narratives and our founding stories. We might embroider them, we might romanticize them a bit and adapt them. So when it comes to challenging a national story, it's a very sensitive affair. Think about Canada's grand story of the Underground Railway and the rescuing of slaves from the South. The telling of that epic, of course, rarely mentions Canada's own history of slavery. Think about our grand story of Canadian Confederation. The telling of that epic often does not include references to the Indian Act or the residential schools. So every nation has these founding myths which may leave out a critical dimension of the story. And they're often woven with some kind of thread of exceptionalism. So how and why does Ezekiel fundamentally challenge and reshape Israel's founding story in chapter 20? Well, he delivers this speech in August of 591, so it's about a year since the vision in the temple, and it's a couple of years since his initial call. And apparently the city of Jerusalem is still standing, and it seems like the optimism of the exiles is still running pretty high. So once again, like in chapter 14, the elders of Israel in exile enter the prophet's house, although they're probably hoping for something more encouraging than his excoriations to date. Well, they're profoundly disappointed, for they find that themselves, they are the focus of a trial. Ezekiel turns the story of God and Israel into a prosecution speech. He's commanded in courtroom language to judge and to confront them in verse 4. So Ezekiel 16 and 20 and 23 have the same purpose, to revisit the story of Yahweh's people and to retell that story in a thoroughly revisionist way. But unlike the explicit and painful allegories of Ezekiel 16 and 23 that Kira walked us through last week, Ezekiel 20, today's text, is not allegorical, but it has the same intent, to explode Israel's fundamental religious and historical assumptions from the monarchy, that Israel was indestructible, that Jerusalem was inviolable, and that the covenant was unbreakable. So Ezekiel's history lesson follows four periods of history. There's some argument about that, but they basically are Israel and Egypt, the first generation after the Exodus, the second generation in the wilderness, and then the people in the land, and including the exile. But inside of each of those periods, four actions happen, and Ezekiel repeats them all the way 
except at the very end. Yahweh declares or acts graciously or significantly, but Israel rebels. So Yahweh's anger is declared and the people's destruction, but Yahweh decides to withhold judgment for the sake of Yahweh's own name. At each stage in action, except for the very last part, Ezekiel subverts the accepted national myth and he twists it into a parody. Let me give you a couple of, of examples. In the first period in Egypt, instead of the received interpretation that we have, which is that Israel was elected before Egypt and committed apostasy with the golden calf after Egypt, Ezekiel has another story. He insists that in the moment of the Exodus itself, both Israel and Egypt deserve judgment. Except for Yahweh's concern for the divine reputation, Israel too would have perished in Egypt. For Ezekiel, the Israelites walking out of Egypt were under the suspended anger of the very God who was delivering them. Another example, in the third period that Ezekiel talks about, the second generation in the wilderness, they proved no better than their parents. In fact, Israel enters the land under the suspended judgment of the divine landlord. The prophet has telescoped eight or nine centuries of national history into a, a large and a cryptic statement and retrojected it onto Israel's desert experience. And it has this horrifying twist as a reference to God's no good law towards the practice of child sacrifice. So now in exile, Israel's recent history is no better. Its centuries of idolatry on high places are tantamount to fundamental and fatal disloyalty. So the exile on this interpretation is not some inexplicable explicable surprise. It's like Yahweh is blowing the final whistle after a hugely extended period of injury time. In verse 30 and beyond, Ezekiel leans into those elders sitting in front of him and he says, the worst of the same sins are being practiced here and now. So the history lesson is over and the prosecution rests its case, but the whole thing ends without a word of Yahweh suspending judgment. Is the divine axe about to fall? Well, there is a moment of grace in the chapter's conclusion, but it's very severe grace in direct confrontation with Israel's idolatry. So there is a new version of Israel's history that will be told in the future. There will be a new exodus. There will be an exodus undertaken in the midst of great wrath and a new and a purging wilderness experience. So Ezekiel talks about some kind of sorting that is yet to be done so that a remnant will finally know that Yahweh is Lord. What do we make of Ezekiel 20? I think Ezekiel perceives that he faces a terrible task. And from the box of available tools, he chooses those that he thinks has the most that have the most power. Ezekiel is clear that this exiled people is obsessed with a dangerously wrong interpretation of their catastrophes. They were gripped 
with this unwavering understanding that exile was not what they deserved and that Yahweh was being unfair or incompetent or both. Some of them were also gripped with a disastrously naive optimism that their own, about their own situation, namely that it would soon all be over and that they would return to Jerusalem and that they would again be delivered by Yahweh. For Ezekiel, these misconceptions had to be shattered. So he arms himself with every rhetorical method, deliberate parody, scathing allegory, grossly distorted caricature, and now he re-schematizes Israel's own founding story. Well, you and I are supposedly wiser these days, right? But the growing list of church, formal church apologies would tell us that there are at least two or more profoundly different tellings of our own founding stories as Christians. Like some of you, I grew up in the era of the triumphant accounts of the faith, going all the way back to the Celts and the Nestorians and the Moravians and their missions, all the way up to the grand global expansion of Christianity in the 19th and 20th centuries. I wonder if we perhaps ourselves are now the elders sitting in Ezekiel's portico as he drags before us the other side of that story and some of the horrors and obscenities of religious wars, pogroms, inquisitions, and he confronts us with centuries of religious bigotry and burnings and drownings and cleansings and cultural assimilations. You could imagine the wave of the power of this as it hits the elders. And in that sense, Ezekiel may be as much our foe here as our friend, but I think he perhaps remains the prophet of God. So are we being sorted as God's children? Are our founding myths also being reinterpreted and reshaped to be more truthful? May God's grace persist with us in our failures, in our repentance, in our learning, and in our reconciliation. Amen.